So we are one week and a couple days into Jordan's sabbatical. And uh, everybody asks me how I'm doing. I'm doing perfectly fine. And I think, uh, I think that's just a testament to uh, the blue water body and what strong ministers we have and, and what type of uh, church we are. And the type of church we are is that there is not just one minister, but everybody ministers. Um, that's one of our fundamental beliefs. And um, we are actually in a sermon series on the Blue Water Distinctives. So what makes Blue Water? What is the culture that fuels us? Last week I kind of talked about, um, I, I gave a, a broad overview about it and pointed out some um, ministry that's already going on. Um, and then the next couple of weeks, we will be talking about the four distinctives in particular. Um, and Elijah is going to start us off, and I just wanted to... Uh, you, you may know Elijah, um, but if you don't, he is a Ohana group leader. Uh, he actually leads uh, a little thing called the teaching team, and he's had a heart to release the gift of teaching uh, amongst the people in our body. And so he has a real heart for that. Um, and I'm so blessed to hear kind of his insight uh, to the scriptures and his insight into the, the blue water life. And I'm so appreciative to have uh, one of the blue water ministers speaking today. So thank you, Elijah. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Let's start off with prayer. Will you join me in prayer? Father God, we come before you to still our hearts. Let everything settle down. And we pray that your spirit will come and fill us up completely. I pray for life and life abundantly because that's what you came here to give, Jesus. So we pray you would fill us up like rain in a desert. Give us your life now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, every year, Blue Water hands out awards. We have a little award ceremony. And we give awards to those who best capture the essence of Blue Water. It's not quite the Oscars. It's the Blueies. Um, but it's very close. We have a blue carpet, not a red carpet. Um, the most coveted prize is the Blue Water Moment of the Year. You definitely want that prize. Uh, it's the award that goes to the person that best captures the essence of Blue Water in that year. It's, it's a story that, it's a person with a story that makes you go, how did my life get to this point? In a good way. Um, it's a life that's turned upside down, inside out, but in a fabulous way. And this year's award went to Julie Olson. Is Julie here? Yay. Julie, if you don't know, is the general manager at Seed Restaurant. And if you're not familiar with Seed, you know, if you've heard TJ and others, Craig, talk about it, uh, Seed is a justice-based restaurant. Uh, the whole point of, of Seed is to provide an opportunity, employment opportunities, for those who otherwise would not have an opportunity, uh, especially those who are a little down and out, you know, um, victims of human trafficking, uh, the homeless, formerly homeless, people who need a leg up 
um, who need a, a chance to reintegrate into society. So Seed Restaurant is, is a ministry of this church. Now, before working at Seed, Julie had lots of experience uh, in, in HR and hiring employees. Okay? Uh, and her HR training tells her to look for well-qualified applicants, which makes sense, right? You look for things like a good education, a good work record. Um, you don't look for people with criminal backgrounds, you know, that sort of stuff. Uh, but, but, um, but, but the, uh, the idea behind Seed is to give opportunities to people who otherwise wouldn't have a second chance, right? That's the whole idea. So that, that meant possibly hiring people who don't have the best of records. So last year, Julie got an application from this guy um, who had a felony conviction for kidnapping and rape. <clears throat> he got out of prison and was trying to turn his life around, but no one would give him a chance. He couldn't find a job, so he applied at Seed. And um, Julie's instinct, being a well-trained HR person, was, no way, <laughs> are you kidding me? Um, you know, this is the person I'm not supposed to hire. But she stopped and remembered, wait a minute, this is the reason why we have seed. You know? So against her training, she gave this guy a chance, hired him, and he was super grateful and turned out to be the sweetest guy. And so Julie looked back at that experience and thought, I'm trying to hire ex-cons, um, exactly the kind of people I've been trained not to hire. How did my life come to become like this? A, truly a blue water moment of the year. And I think Julie's testimony is a great example um, of the topic we're studying currently in our sermon series called Worlds Colliding. Uh, in the next few weeks, we're looking at the clash between values of this world and the values of the kingdom. Uh, and in Julie's case, conventional wisdom, you know, the, the values of this world, will tell you that it's the felon's own fault for screwing up, for being unemployable. And, um, and she shouldn't put the safety of herself and the staff at risk for this person's uh, misgivings, you know, this person's faults. But what Julie did was to, to choose to live by kingdom values. And that meant treating the man with dignity and giving him a second chance. Now at Blue Water, we take the kingdom very seriously and we take kingdom values very seriously. We embrace kingdom values. And in the sermon series, what we're gonna do is look at uh, some of those values because they are, you can never get too much of the fundamentals of the kingdom. Um, so the kingdom values that we refer to as the Blue Water Distinctives are up there. Uh, they are anti-religiosity. Uh, they are missional focus, being oriented towards missions. Um, they're anti, the third one is anti-materialism. And the last one is supernaturalism. We embrace the supernatural and how God can work in supernatural ways. <clears throat> so this week, uh, a good place to start is anti-religiosity. We're going to take a look at God's heart for being against religion and being for something else. You know, a colleague of mine um, and I were chatting with, with a gal uh, uh, during a meeting, uh, meeting break a while ago. And um, we were chatting with this person and we got onto the favorite topic of local conversation, which is, what high school did you go to? Exactly, bingo. So, um, so my, my friend, my, my colleague, I'll call him Tom, um, went to a Catholic high school. And uh, he shared about how he used to love challenging the priests 
uh, about inconsistencies in church doctrine. Just loved getting a rise out of the priests. And, and after he shared that, that, he leaned towards the woman as if to share a secret and at the same time kind of motioned for me to cover my ears. Because what the thing he next shared was, you know, organized religion is the source of all evil in the world. Now, Tom knew I'm a Christian, and I, th I think he thought that I would be offended by his remarks. <clears throat> but I actually wasn't offended. Um, I actually thought that there's some truth behind his point, some of it, some, some of it was true, and I also felt compassion towards Tom. Um, I felt like telling Tom, if you only really knew what God was like, uh, if you only knew that he hates religiosity also, and that, in fact, God is the irreligious God, if only you knew, you knew that. As I reflected on Tom's point, um, I don't think his problem was really with Christianity per se. Uh, I don't think he had anything against church rituals uh, or even Jesus' teachings. I think Tom's problem, his real problem, was with the use of religious ideals to oppress others. And Tom's not alone in thinking this. It's a very common objection to Christianity and religion in general, that Christianity or religion is responsible for so much conflict um, and wars in, in history and, and so much violence, you know. And, and history tells us that there is some truth behind that. Okay? There have been many wars that have been fought in the name of religious ideals. And even now, we see religious conflict as a fact of life. It's very real today as we deal with the problem of terrorism. So we, we can't just brush that aside. It's, it's somewhat valid. <clears throat> Another common objection to uh, Christianity is that Christians, you're so judgmental. You know, you just love making it your business to put people in their place and tell them how to live their lives. Now, if you identify with these criticisms of religion, then you're in good company. In fact, you're in very good company. You're in the company of Jesus because Jesus also had similar objections to religion. If you're a student of the Bible, <coughs> you'll see that there are many objections, or there are many instances recorded of Jesus having clashes with the religious leaders of the day. He would confront them. He would call out religious leaders for using religious rules in a way that pressed people down, oppressed them, and separated them from God. He hated that. Uh, we see one example um, being the religious leaders criticizing Jesus for doing work on the Sabbath. You know, the Sabbath is, keeping the Sabbath uh, as a day of rest is one of the Ten Commandments, and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, had intricate rules about what you could do or could not do that's considered work. And they saw Jesus doing things that they considered work, including healing people. Like, you can't do that during the Sabbath because that's work. And Jesus' response was, the Sabbath was, not, was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Why is it not a good idea to help people during the Sabbath? That's ridiculous. And he went, he went ahead and healed a, a man with a withered hand. That's the account we see in the Bible. So we, these, we see these clashes all the time between the religious leaders and Jesus. But Jesus' gripe with... Um, 
Jesus' gripe with uh, the religious leaders was, was more basic than just the fact that they had arbitrary religious rules. It went deeper than that. Uh, because, you see, Jesus' mission was to separate this, uh, to, to bridge the separation between God and humanity. Right? That, that's why he came. And in order to do that, he had to address a basic flaw in how people operate. And that's the legalistic mindset. Much like cancer, legalism ravages people. It reduces them to nothing. And that's something that definitely God and Jesus were against. So if that's true, it, it, you know, it pays to figure out what is legalism. What is, what is this thing called legalism? I'm going to give you a basic working definition of legalism. Legalism is the misuse of right and wrong, of standards of right and wrong. Okay? It's the misuse of standards. It's not legalistic just to have standards um, and even to follow standards, but it is legalistic to misuse these standards in a way so as to define a person's worth. Okay? In other words, if you don't follow these rules, then you're less of a person. That's legalism. And religiosity is a, a subset of that. It's a specific species of legalism because re religiosity is the misuse of religious standards to measure how much a person is loved by God or accepted by God. And so when we say, um, if you don't follow this religious rule, then God condemns you, that's, that would be religiosity. Legalism is actually a lot more common and prevalent than we might expect, than we might think. Um, you know, we go back to the story uh, at the beginning, the, the blue water moment of the year. Why was the fact that Julie hired a convicted felon funny or, or weird? Why does it rub against us? You know, why isn't it just normal? And I think the answer is because it cuts against the grain of the world. Um, the world is not a forgiving place at all. It's, it's actually steeped in legalism. It's a brutal world out there. And we see this played out all the time. You know, it's become, I think, a sport uh, to pounce on people's weaknesses and mistakes and then to vilify them for it. You know, it, it's, just, it's just fun. It's become fun to be snarky, to make, them pay, make people pay for their mistakes. Almost every week, we see a celebrity say something that's stupid, that's offensive to others, and uh, the, the internet just goes on an outrage, and that forces the celebrity to, you know, to issue an apology over Twitter or something like that. Uh, and we see that pattern played out over and over and over again, don't we? You know? um, the, the online magazine Slate, every, anyone read Slate? Uh, yeah, okay. Slate in 2014 put out a website called The Year of Outrage. And what it did was it, it put up for every day of the year, it put up a little icon, and you could click on it, and you can see on that day what outraged people on the Internet. <laughs> if this were a computer screen, you could click your mouse on any of these screens, and a little graphic will pop up showing you what outraged people on that particular day. Um, and, you know, we see it today. Just give you two recent examples. Uh, recently, Madeleine Albright, a former ambassador, was at a Hillary Clinton rally. Um, giving support to, to Hillary Clinton, and she, she said, there is a special place in hell for women who don't help each other. 
That, of course, produced outrage. And uh, she later apologized, uh, you know, trying to explain that her statement was taken out of context. So both the statement and the reaction was steeped in, in legalism. Here's another example. Recognize him? Cam Newton, quarterback for the Carolina Panthers. If you watch the Super Bowl, you know they didn't have a very good day. Um, especially Cam. He really didn't have a very good day at all. Um, Cam's known as this very uh, flashy, flamboyant pay, uh, player. Uh, but after the Super Bowl, he, had, he sung a very different tune. He was sulking at the post-game press conference, um, answered questions in just one or two words, you know, just sulking, sulking, and left after a while because he just couldn't stand it anymore. Um, and his, his attitude uh, just really outraged people. You saw tweets like that hating on him. And I thought that actually his reaction to this afterwards is, is really telling. Um, he said, who are you to say that your way is right? I have all these people who are condemning and saying this, that, and the third. I'm not sure what it, that means, the third. But, but what makes your right, way right? What makes your way right? Why do I have to conform to your expectations? Okay. So he's feeling the brunt of legalism. Legalism's everywhere. It's all around us. Everybody does it. The Republicans call the Democrats uh, immoral socialists. The Democrats call the Republicans greedy, rich bigots. Um, one ethnic group calls the other racist. Men and women are at each other's throats. It happens all over the place. Insults fly. It's a sport. And you know, it doesn't matter whether the criticism is correct or not. That's not the point. The problem is taking the leap from criticism, especially constructive criticism, to, to making that leap from that to making a judgment about whether a person deserves to be loved or not. Okay? It's measuring their dignity in terms of how well they measure up to expectations. And that kind of critical spirit is destructive. It destroys relationships with, among people, and it also destroys our relationship with God. And Jesus knew this very well, and that's why he one of the things that he taught over and over again was how God is not like that. He's a graceful God. And he gave us a story to illustrate this. It's a very familiar story. Um, it's a very familiar story. It's in the bulletin. It's in your bulletins. Uh, it comes from Luke 15, verses 11 to 32. Uh, and the story goes like this. A man had two sons. Okay? The younger son asked his father to give him his share of uh, his father's assets, his, his possessions. Um, and, and that's a really offensive request because you don't distribute assets in a family until uh, the parents are dead, until the father's dead. So basically what the son is telling the father is, you're as good as dead to me. Just give me my share now. Um, just give me my cash. And the father, uh, bless his soul, complies. You know, he's, he gives the younger son his share. The younger son takes his share, leaves home, and wastes it on reckless living. But the money runs out, and a famine strikes the country, and so the son now goes hungry. Uh, he, and the only job he can find is, is one feeding pigs, which is repulsive, because in the Jewish culture, pigs are unclean. So this is about the, the dirtiest job that you can get. The son eventually realizes hey, I'm worse off than the servants in my father's home. 
So he has a plan. His plan is to go back to his father, apologize, and get hired back as a servant. So he goes back uh, to his father, and the father, um, the father sees the younger son returning from a distance and runs towards him, which also is very odd because it's very unbecoming for a man of that stature, you know, in the Middle Eastern culture, a, a wealthy, noble man running. Why? Because how do you run? You have robes. You have to lift up your robes and show your, your legs, your naked legs. And nakedness was beneath a man of that stature. But he doesn't care. You know, he lifts up his robes and he starts running. Um, he hugs his son um, and, and embraces him and kisses him. So the son apologizes to his father and begs for a job as a servant, as planned, but the father doesn't, doesn't go through with that. He, he orders his servants to put a robe on this son, put a ring on his finger, and orders the servants to, to serve the fattened calf and stake his hat. A party is thrown. Now, meanwhile, the older son, he had a brother, right? The brother hears all this commotion out in the, in the background, and he, when he, he, he figures out that there's a party going on. Um, and when he finds out what the party is for, he sulks, kind of like Cam Newton. He sulks, and he refuses to go to the party. And his father tries to persuade him to join this, this celebration. Sorry. Uh, okay, there we go. She tries to convince him to uh, join the party. Um, and, and he just refuses, and he, he answers the father, you know, look, all these years I've served you well, I've obeyed your commands, and you didn't even give me a young goat to celebrate with my friends. And here you have your son, let's call him his brother, your son wastes all his money with the prostitutes, and he comes back, and what do you do? You give him a fat calf. Pow, pow, pow. Um... And the father responds, look, son, you're always with me. You've got whatever I've got. And all that's mine is yours. But it's right that we celebrate our, your brother who's lost and now is found. Okay. All right, pretty familiar story. Um, obviously, the father represents God. And the younger son represents people who disobey God, sinners. Uh, and, and, you know, this story is often called what? The prodigal son. And I think, actually, it should probably be called the parable of the older brother or the jealous son. And, and th there's why. You know, this story certainly shows the enormous grace of God. Of course, that's pretty obvious. Um, but if that's the whole point of the story, you could have stopped at the party and be done with it. You, don't, you actually don't need the bit about the older brother to make the story complete, if that's the entire point of the story. But no, we have this this kind of, you know, last part of the story about the older brother. And that tells us that the older brother is an essential part of the story. Okay. Why is the older brother so mad at his, his dad? Why, why is he just seething? He's a legalist. Okay. He's got that legalistic mindset. He, he considers the love of his father something to be earned. That's the standard that he's living by. And he's met that standard well. By golly, he's worked hard. He's obeyed his father and everything that he's done. He's put his blood, sweat, and tears meeting up that, to that standard. And so when the father showers grace towards his brother, that son of his, who wastes his life 
and the money with prostitutes, who doesn't obey the father, that's a slap in the face to the older brother. That's, that's not fair. It's, it's offensive. It's even obscene. How can you do that to me? The younger son deserved to be punished, not celebrated. And so the older brother's thinking, if you really look at it, it's very destructive. And it's destructive in at least three ways. For one thing, it creates bitterness between the older, the older brother and his, and his younger brother. It creates this rift in their relationship. It destroys the relationship. Right? He, he can't accept, uh, the older brother can't accept the younger brother because the screw-up there didn't meet the standard. Okay? But it, the, the second thing it does is, is that the, this legalistic mind frame creates a sense of entitlement. Um, the older brother thinks that he met the standard of hard work and obedience, so, so what? So what does that mean? He deserves the father's love. You owe me, dad. You owe me at least a goat. Um, and he also thinks, of course, the inverse of that, that those who don't meet the standard, like the younger brother, don't deserve the father's love. And that's why he's very bitter towards the father for showering this extravagant grace towards the younger brother. The third thing it does is that it, this legalism uh, mindset blinds the older brother to what he's got. You know, he's, he's already loved by the father, clearly. And not only that, but he's got an inheritance. Um, by virtue of being the elder son under the law of primogeniture, which controlled at the time, the, the law of primogeniture says if you're the elder son, you get the lion's share of the inheritance. You get most of it. Um, and so this elder son has most of what the father has. He's got it coming. And yet, he's fixated on a fattened calf. He can't get over that. Okay. So rather than embrace the father's love and this, this wealth that he has already, okay, he lives under a spirit of poverty. He lives like he's poor, when that's in fact not true. But his legalism blinds him to the to the wealth that he already has. Now, Jesus' point in telling the story, I think, is, is pretty simple but profound. What he's telling us is that legalism destroys relationships, um, and it robs us of God's love for us, his unconditional love that can never be earned. It's, it's something that we have already, but legalism robs us of it. It hardens our heart. It makes us cold towards others and even perhaps cold to ourselves. So how do, you, how do you break that cycle of legalism? Well, you need grace, of course. And what that grace looks like, Jesus, um, Jesus hints at in, in his teachings. You know, the key to breaking the cycle is not to live without any standards. You know, I mean, should we just chuck all, the, all rules and standards out the, out the window? No, that would be foolish. That's what the younger son did, and look how it turned out for him. Okay? That would be chaos in life if we did that. So that's not the solution. Right? So the, the problem with legalism is not raising up the standards, but using them the wrong way. Um, so Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, in a portion of the Sermon on the Mount, he hints at the solution in, in, in his Sermon on the Mount, and he tells us this. He says, you've heard that it was said of those to, of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you 
that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus starts off with a commandment against murder. And that's pretty basic. I mean, we all know that murderers deserve judgment, of course. But then he quickly switches from murderers to people who get angry and then just those who insult others by calling them fools, calling them stupid. And he says, those people, they deserve judgment as well. They deserve to go to hell as well. And we're like, whoa, wait a minute, Jesus. It's kind of a leap. Like, yeah, murderers deserve death, but you mean if I call someone you're stupid, I, go to, I deserve death also? That's, what are you talking about? You know, what is Jesus getting at? The point is this. The first step towards a murderous heart is a critical spirit. Right? That's how it starts. Murdering someone requires us to think that that person is not worth living. And at the very least, even if we don't consciously go through that thought process, you don't deserve to live, at the very least, we're indifferent to whether they deserve to live or not. We don't care about their dignity. We have such a low opinion of their human worth that it just doesn't matter to me. It's apathy towards their dignity. So when we condemn someone in our hearts, we're headed in the same direction as a murderous spirit. We're we're headed down that road that leads to murder. And the criticism and the condemnation and judgments that the world heaps upon us, that kills us. I think that's what Jesus is saying. When you you tell someone, "You you fool, you idiot, that kills them in some way. It's destructive. Now, what Jesus did at the cross, you see, was to take the effects of that condemnation, of that murderous spirit, on himself. He took all the oppression, he took all the criticism, he took all the condemnation, he took all that that's meant for us, that's directed at us, and he took it upon himself. He took on the consequences of failing to meet the standards of failure, all the expectations that's imposed upon us. He took it all, even if that meant death, he took it upon himself. And at the same time, he took on the consequences for indulging in a murderous spirit. You know, we've all done it. We've had this murderous spirit. And so we deserve punishment too. And Jesus took that on as well on the cross. And why did he do it? To show us that God's love can't be bought. It can't be earned. You know, it's it's not conditioned on how well we meet the standards. It never was. It never was. God loves us despite our failures. And and there's no way that God will fall out of love with us. And that's why. That's why we find in Romans 8, Paul writing this remarkable statement. He says, Paul writes in Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation. The consequence of legalism. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of of the law might be fulfilled in us 
who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And then here is the zinger. For I am sure that neither life nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. God's unconditional love frees us to be compassionate, warms our heart, it frees us to be generous and kind because God's unconditional love applies not only to you but to your neighbor. And so if God loves my neighbor this much, who am I to not love my neighbor? Who am I to condemn my neighbor and heap insults upon him and condemn him to death? God didn't. Who are we to do that? We need more grace in our lives, don't we? We need the grace of the religious God. So how do we do it? How do we receive this grace? I want to give you a couple of just two practical tips for becoming a more gracious person uh, and becoming less legalistic. One way we can embrace grace is by taking stock of the standards we're living by, the expectations that we put on ourselves and that we expect others to live in. You know, a lot of times we hold ourselves and others to expectations without even realizing it. They're just embedded in our heads. So a a critical step to becoming more gracious is to identify those standards and expectations. Um, Those are the standards that might hold us back from living unconditionally. And remember that having these standards is not bad. Okay? It's not bad to have expectations uh, or standards, although some standards are not godly. Okay? Not, they're not all godly, but just having them is not bad, but misusing them is. So if you're rationing out your love based on these standards, that, that's legalism, right? So if you want to love well, um, you, we ha- you have to identify the standards that we're, we're using to ration out love and then renounce them, to, to get them out of the way. Okay, to renounce those conditions, to call it out, you know, to say something like, you know, I, I, I realize that I'm holding my brother to the standard of perfection in the way they do their jobs, and I'm not loving them because they're screwing up. I renounce that, okay? Calling out the standards and then renouncing them. So that's, that's one very practical way, taking stock uh, of what, what is holding us back. A second tip <clears throat> is to refill our reservoir of grace. Uh, sometimes we're leaky buckets. You know, we get grace, but there's, there's leakage and seepage, and we need to get refilled. Um, so it's, it's helpful to be reminded of how gracious God is to us. And I love the story in the Bible about um, Jesus going to the, the house of a Pharisee, a religious leader, uh, for dinner. And this woman comes up, um, and just really, really odd, she, she breaks this really expensive perfume on his feet and then starts washing his feet with her hair. Uh, and, and the host, the, the Pharisee, says, Jesus, if you know who this woman is, you, know, you, you would know that she's a sinner, implying you probably don't want to be associating uh, with this woman. And Jesus' reply is, you know, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And that's a principle that we can take to the bank because the idea is that the more we appreciate how sinful we are, 
the more grace we receive. Okay? It's not cheap grace. It's expensive grace. And, and that, in turn, empowers us to love better. So if I'm running on low on grace, what I'll often do is I will meditate on my screw-ups. <laughs> I will meditate on the shortcomings in my life, uh, the past sins and the failures. But I won't stop there, because if I just stop there, then I'll get defeated. I will then meditate on how much I've been forgiven. All those times where I was brought to my knees because of my sin, God came in and showed grace to me. And this fusion of sin and grace produces in me a sweetness, a power to be graceful. And that's the refilling of my reservoir with grace. Okay? And we need to do that from time to time uh, so that we're filled up. Right? It's not just a one-time thing. The kingdom's a beautiful thing, right? It's, it's a kingdom that's like none other. It's a world colliding into the one that we're familiar with. And I think if you're a blue water, you probably want to see more of the, king, of the kingdom in your life. Well, the kingdom shows up when we tap into the grace of this religious God. It's the grace of God that moves us to love unconditionally um, like he does. It's the grace of God that melts our heart um, that changes the way that we look at the world and interact with people to the point where we can look at our lives and with great satisfaction say, how has my life come, become like this? Don't you want that kind of story in your life as well? How have I come to this in a really good way? Let's pray. Father, we live in a world of standards, <clears throat> and we just thank you, Lord, that you don't crush us under the standards, but you lift us up. You actually use the standards to show us your immense grace. And I, I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come right now and that you would speak to us individually. The areas where we feel beaten up because we think you're mad at us or we think that someone else has put their burdens on us. Holy Spirit, would you just come and lift those burdens? Will you whisper to us how much you loved us, how much you love us, and how that can never, never be separated from us? Just take five seconds. Let that sink in. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray.